Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, December 1st, 2013. The share ID number for Friday, November 29th, is 5556. That's 5556. This morning's presentation is Bill's story. Chapter 1 of the Big Book is devoted to Bill W.'s story. First and foremost, it's the story of an ordinary man who found a solution to the problem of alcoholism. It's a frightening, vivid, and detailed account of one alcoholic's descent into madness. It is also the inspiring and uplifting story of his complete recovery. Here to bring to life and expound on Bill's story is Kim G. Kim is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous and a vision for you, intensively working with other compulsive overeaters to carry the message that indeed there is a solution. Welcome to the line, Kim G. Thank you, Leah. And thank you, everyone, for getting up on this holiday weekend to... uh, to focus on our recovery from this hopeless state of mind and body. And uh, what I'm hoping to do today is to bring alive Bill's story, to get it from being a quaint little story about a man who lived in the 30s who was a World War veteran and stockbroker in New York City and help to understand that it really is our story. It's the story of the disease. Um, So what is that disease? I'm just going to go over briefly. What did we learn in the doctor's opinion? Because once again, if we aren't grounded in this doctor's opinion, why do we care about the rest of the book? So what is a compulsive overeater? It is a twofold illness. The first part is that we have this allergy of the body. We have this allergy, an abnormal reaction, that when we ingest certain substances, our body physiologically is different than other people. What happens is when we ingest these substances, that feeling intensifies and never satisfies which explained to me why I was less satisfied at the 100th bite than I was at the first bite. And that is my permanent disability. That's what makes me a distinct entity. I will never not have the allergy of the body, which is why I identify myself as recovered and not cured. But even more dastardly is I have this obsession of the mind. I have this mind that even when I have the willpower to put the food down long enough that the allergy is no longer being triggered, I have a mind that deceives me, that is delusional, that tells me, come on, it's been 30 days, it's been 20 pounds, it's been, you know, it's been three hours. This time you can eat like a lady. And if I have that dangerous combination of both, then I am a compulsive overeater. So medically that makes sense. But the question is, what does that look like in somebody's life? Now that we understand the diagnosis, How does that manifest in a human being? And that is what Bill's story talks to us about. So just briefly for myself, you know, how that manifested physically for me is my top size was a size 24. My lowest size was a size 2 when I lost my period and my hair was falling out. And I am currently a size 10. But even as a size 10, I was at certain times in my disease, I was binging and purging and exercising to the point I couldn't walk all weekend. So the disease manifested itself in many ways physically, 
but that is only a sliver or a slice of the true alcoholic torture, which was that mental obsession. So I hope you guys have your big books because I am going to refer to that and read quite a bit of it as I go through this. And Bill's story is basically divided into three sections the way that I was taught. is pages one through eight is the progression of the illness. And what we want to ask ourselves is not are we a man, are we a stockbroker, do we understand World War I, but we're going to ask ourselves, did we eat like that? Did I think like that? And did I feel like that? And that will let us identify in with, is this our reality? Is our reality that we have this disease as well? And if we have this disease, we are going to need to seek that solution, which is a, a, a relationship with a higher power. And by doing that, we're going to have to take the action steps in order to get that access to the higher power. So one through eight is going to show us what that disease looks like in a human being. And then pages 8 through 12 is going to be Bill's struggle with the idea of needing a higher power. How does he come to that conclusion, which is all step two is, a conclusion that he needs that power? And then in pages 13 through 16, we're going to try to identify where are those action steps being done? Where are the rest of those steps? And this also, once again, will mimic my path and mimic a lot of people's paths and the way that the big book is set up. The largest part of the big book is trying to get, convince us, trying to get us to identify in that we have this disease. That's where our biggest resistance is. I am different. You guys might need to do this, but because I am a unique case, I don't need to do it. The second biggest resistance is a higher power. Either because we're coming from the place where we don't believe in a higher power, or maybe like myself where I grew up in a very structured religion and had a very definitive idea of a higher power, which by my evidence, by what my life has come to, it's obvious that that higher power is not sufficient. And then once we come to those two conclusions and we make that decision to seek that power, it goes quickly, which is why the rest of the steps in 13 through 16, basically on pages 13 and 14, he's going to do the steps. Okay. The other thing I want to point out is, if you notice, we're going to talk about this, Bill's story starts when he is drinking. Now, Bill, I looked up some information on Bill of what happened prior to him going into the war. And Bill had some tragic stuff happen to him. You know, he basically was abandoned by his parents at a young age that got divorced. And we're talking back in the early 1900s where divorce was very, very, very rare and very much a scandal. And his father went on a business trip and never came back. And his mother left to seek getting a medicine degree. And he was stuck. Him and his sister were stuck with their grandfather, their maternal grandfather. And as much as we know about Lois, the great love of his life, it was not his first love. At the age of 17, he had his first love, a woman he wanted to marry. And she died due to complications of a surgery. But he doesn't go into that because the point of the story is in his relationship with the drink. And I just want to point that out because I think we waste a lot of time in OA talking about our childhoods that have nothing to do with our compulsive overeating. The fact that I'm old, the oldest of three children is not why I'm a compulsive overeater. The fact that I went through 12 years of Catholic school is not the reason I was a compulsive overeater. 
the way that my parents' marriage manifested in my life is not the reason I'm a compulsive overeater. It's part of my story. But the reason I am a compulsive overeater is because I have an allergy body and obsession of the mind. And how does that manifest in my life? And how does that parallel with Bill's story? How can I identify in that I have the same problem as this alcoholic, as a compulsive overeater? So I'm going to go to page one. And I'm going to pick out certain sentences. So hopefully you guys can follow me. In that first paragraph, about halfway down, when he's going off to war, it says, I was a part of love. At lo I'm sorry. Here was love, applause, war, moments in line with intervals hilarious. I was a part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. So alcohol was making life better, which reminds me of when I was a kid and I would go to a, a, a birthday party, and it was always fun to have the cake. Or when I would go out for Halloween, and it was fun to get the candy going from from house to house. It was a part of the excitement. It was a part of the celebration. But by the end of that same paragraph, it says, I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. So first he's using alcohol as a way to celebrate, and then he's using alcohol as a way to companion himself. And that so identifies with me. Food was a way to celebrate, but by the time I was a teenager, it was a companion. When my friends were out, doing the Halloween thing, and I was too fat and would have to dress in a costume that was disgusting, I stayed home and just ate the candy, hoping the kids wouldn't knock on the door. I wouldn't go to the birthday parties where all the girls were hanging out in the cute outfits because I was too heavy. I would sit home alone and I would eat. So the reason I ate in the beginning, it was turning around. And then at the bottom of that same page, it says, my talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost insurance. This is the alcoholic mind. This is the mind that has this overinflated ego that says, I am going to conquer the world. I remember feeling that way, going into high school, I'm going to be prom queen. I'm going to get to be head of student council, because that's my due. And on the next um, page on page two, around three lines down, I'd prove to the world I was important. That was because I felt I needed to do that because I felt so lousy about myself that I was going to have to prove to the world that I was important because in and of myself I felt valueless. In and of myself I knew I was a piece of crap, but if I could make the world believe that I had value, then I would be okay. A little farther down in that paragraph, it says that my drinking was not yet continuous. It disturbed my wife. And I definitely remember this in high school. Specifically, I was an athlete. And in, in eighth grade, I was all county in basketball. I was a tall kid. I was, I'm five to six now, and I was about five four in eighth grade. I was the tallest kid in my class. But when I got to high school and all the other girls started growing, and I wasn't growing, I made the basketball team my freshman year, but by sophomore year I was cut. And I asked the coach, why was I cut? He said, well, you're too short to play the position you used to play, and if you take off 20 pounds, maybe we can use you in a different position. So here already, because I wasn't growing as much and the weight was coming on because I wasn't going through a growth spurt anymore, it was taking away part of my identity and part of something I love, my athletic side. So what I did was I got a job in the mall instead. And I discovered that food court. And no matter how bad my day was going, how much I saw the popular kids hanging out in the mall as I was sitting there selling handbags and gimbals, I would be able to 
to comfort myself, to ease and use that ease and comfort of sitting in the in the mall in the food court eating my cheese fries. And I definitely saw that it concerned my parents. It concerned my parents how they saw me withdrawing because I was losing those things which were my identity. And I was leaning more heavily towards food. I couldn't see that quite, but I remember the concern of my parents. And then the next line, we had long talks where I was still her forebodings by telling her that the men of genius conceived their best projects when drunk. I remember that in college. Well, I'm pulling an all-nighter. I have to have this food. How else am I going to stay up all night unless I have M&Ms? M&Ms are going to give me the energy to study. I rationalized what I wanted to eat because that was what was going to give me the ability to study, the ability to excel in school, even though I was terrified. I was, I was a nursing student. I found out while I was going to school, I really don't like nursing. My dad wanted me to be a nurse, so I was totally confused about how to handle that. And then in that next sentence, the next paragraph, about three lines down, it says, business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alley of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that would one day turn in this path and, and cut me to ribbons. So what Bill, what we're going to see throughout this story is Bill's currency. What Bill gets Bill going is money and business, and he is going to be constantly seeking that as his answer. If I can get the right business deal together, if I can get enough money in the bank, then I am going to be okay. That's going to be the roller coaster we're going to see. So what is that for you? What is it that drives you that you think is your answer and you're going to pursue that? So for me, it was popularity. If I can become the cheerleader, if I can get the right guy, if I can be the popular girl in school, then I am going to be okay. So that alloy, which is combination, the alloy of drink and speculation, that alloy of eating and popularity. You know, when I was playing basketball, when we win a game, we'd go to the friendlies and we'd be having the, the peanut butter ice cream sundaes. That was fun. That was joyful. Going to the movies in groups and hanging out, that was joyful. Going to the dances and having all the snacks, that was joyful. That combination of drink and popularity is what drove me. That was my currency. So you got to ask yourself, what is your currency? Is it being the best mother? Is it being in the, in the living in the right neighborhood? Is it having the right car, the right title at work? What is driving you? Because you are dis ultimately we're disconnected from God, and since we don't feel value in that, we're going to seek to have value in something else. And the food and that value become intertwined. So on page three, after Bill is starting to get this, his currency, he's getting his money and his, and his fame, it says on that first full paragraph, for the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. My judgment and ideas were followed by many by the two paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drinking was taking an important and exhilarating part of my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and shattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I had a host of fair-weather friends. So after I gained a lot of my weight in college, I came home morbidly obese. And I'm not just saying that. That was my diagnosis when I went to a doctor when I was 23. And I decided I had to get serious. I got fired from a job. 
I was 23 years old, living in my parents' house, and I'm like, I have to get serious about this. Well, I was taught to be bulimic in college. I was in a sorority where everyone was thin and beautiful but me, and we would literally have binge and purge parties where we would binge our brains out, and then we'd stand in line and throw up. And I could binge like them, and I was humiliated that I couldn't throw up like them. And I would make gagging noises in the bathroom, hoping they would think I was being able to throw up like them. Well, when I was 23, I decided I had to work on this. And I did. And even though I wasn't that good at throwing up, I was really good at working out. And I remember one time, I actually was on a, a elliptical, and I had 102 fever. But I had to do my elliptical. And I actually, I don't know if I passed out, but I fell off the elliptical, and I split my head open. And I got up and I tried to cover the blood with my hair so nobody could tell me to get off of that. And I stayed on that elliptical for another half hour because I don't even remember if I was earning a binge or if I was working off a binge because I was determined and I lost weight. In fact, that gym asked me to write a story and I had a before picture and I had an after picture. And I talked about how wonderful this gym was and it allowed me to get to that point because I had arrived. For the first time in my life, men were paying attention to me. I was 26 years old before I even had my first kiss. And suddenly I was out. I'm a big dancer. I was out dancing at a country western place, and guys were waiting, getting my, you know, standing in line with the old-fashioned, taking the number of who would get to dance with me next. I had arrived. Drinking was taking the more important, exhilarating part of my life because with bulimia, it was this mental gymnastic game of how much time on the pre-cord and how, what that allowed me to eat. And then if I danced this long, I could go home and reward myself with this. And if I had that in the morning, I would have to make sure I punished myself enough with that. It was becoming an exhilarating and important part of my life. As I was hanging out in the cool jazz clubs, I was the cool girl at this dance club. But eventually, and I had a lot of fair-weather friends, because I had a lot of guys that, like, you know, I, I could make them look good dancing. I had a lot of girlfriends that would want to dance with me because I, I wouldn't be the one that could help them dance with the better dancers. And then it says in the next paragraph, my drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row, and I became a lone wolf. And that happened because I could only keep that up for so long. And eventually, my eating outran my exercise. My, out, my eating outran my ability to throw up. And I put weight on. And I had to quit that gym because how could I go back to that gym heavier when my picture was freaking hanging on the wall? How could I hang out at this club all the time when I couldn't even fit in the outfit I was wearing a couple days before? So I started to, to internalize again. I became the lone wolf. And then at the bottom of that, it talks about contracting golf fever. About three lines down, liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up upon Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. So I was doing these things in order to have this popularity again. But soon my need for food overran my need for popularity. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night, I'm going to guess that the reason that Bill loved golfing was because it allowed him to drink. He wasn't going to pick an activity that wouldn't allow him to drink. And I think about the activities that I picked. You know, when all these home parties were so excited, I was always going to Pampered Chef and Dove Chocolate. When they were selling handbags and jewelry, I could care less about their home party. 
You know, when I would pick a babysitting job in high school, I didn't care what the kids were like. I would babysit for them once. I would check out their pantries, and if the food was good enough, then I would take a job again. When I would go out to friends' houses, it was all about what food they had. When I would go out to, um, you know, to dinner, I, I really wasn't concerned about who was going, but where they were going to dinner. Food was becoming the central part of my life. So then we go down another paragraph on page four, that first full paragraph when the stock market crash happened in 1929. And about four lines up from the bottom, it says, the papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. So here's Bill in judgment. He was disgusted by them committing suicide by jumping from the, from the towers, but yet what was he doing by going into the bar and drinking till he blacked out? He was committing a slow suicide. And I remember doing that. I have cousins that, um, that I have a lot of drinking drinkers in my family, and I would go to family functions, and I would be disgusted by how sloppy drunk my cousins would get. But then I would turn around and I would say, come on, Aunt, Aunt Ann or Aunt Dorothy, I'll help you clean up. Because I wanted to be alone in the kitchen with the leftovers. Being with my family was so stressful that my cousins drank over it and I was disgusted by it. And I ate over it and I thought it was fine. You know, when I would see people and I would break up with a guy and I would say, you know, they would do things and I would poo-poo on them. But what would I do? I would sit home on a Saturday night with a menage a trois of me, Ben, and Jerry. And I thought that was better than the way other people handled the way they broke up. So I was judging them on how they handled stress, but I was just handling it in a different way. So on the top of page five, Bill is starting to turn that corner. The disease is starting to pull him down. It says liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Fast tub gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. Because I would say I love the finest bakery in town. I'm, I'm, I'm a ritzy girl hanging out at the, t- at the biggest bakery. But towards the end, I was going to Walmart and buying store brand Oreos because I could get more. It was no longer a luxury. I had to have that food. Bathtub gin. He was making his liquor in order to have more because he could not afford to have the good stuff. And it was more important that he had more than he had the quality that he used to have. He was hanging out in jazz clubs and the finest places and the country club, and now he's alone drinking bathtub gin. One of my favorite binge foods is pizza. And I've shared this on the line quite a few times because it really hits me why doctors' opinion line, you know, that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect. And I really thought I liked the taste. You know, I would order a pizza and I would have half of it, and I would put half of it in the, in the, in the refrigerator saying, I am not going to eat the other half. And I'd wake up in the morning and I would eat the other half. And then I'm like, no, I can't do this anymore. And I would wrap the pizza in tinfoil and I'd throw it in the trash and I would still get up in the middle of the night and eat it. And then I knew it had to be stopped. So I would just throw the pizza in the trash without the tinfoil and I would get up and I would pull it out of the trash, wipe off the dust bunnies and I would eat it. And then I got really, really desperate. And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. So I put Ajax on top of the pizza. And invariably at 2 o'clock in the morning, I would get up and I had tears rolling down my face and I would go into the kitchen and I would 
pull out the pizza and I'd wipe off the Ajax to the best of my ability and I would still eat it. That was not a luxury. It was now a necessity. I always talk about, too, one of my favorite binge foods was cereal. And in my, there was a time when I, went, when I started college that um, we had woods behind us in my house and they were building condos for like two or three years. And my house was inundated with mice. I mean, it was unbelievable how many mice we had in the house for a few years. And I got up at 2 o'clock in the morning the day before I started college because I was so scared. In fact, I attempted suicide before I started school, not because I, I wanted to die, but I was afraid to live. I had no coping mechanisms. I was afraid to live. And 2 o'clock in the morning, I come into my pantry and I put my hand out to hit to get the cereal, and a mouse jumps on my arm and runs down my arm onto the floor and runs over. But that didn't stop me. No, hold on. I'm sorry, that upset my dog. <laughs> um, and the next year, the same exact thing happened. Two o'clock in the morning, I come down to eat the cereal. And I'm eating the cereal, and I'm hearing this little rumbling inside the box, and a mouse crawls out of the box, runs across my kitchen table onto the floor. But I still kept eating. I was probably eating mouse feces, but I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. It was the only way that I knew to cope with life, was to try to get that ease and comfort. And at this point, it was just a numbness I was hoping for. So at the end of that paragraph on page five, the first full paragraph, it says, nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. So there was. There were times, as the disease hadn't progressed enough, that I could get some time together. I could get a year. I could get a few months. I could, I could work the bulimia or work the exercise to the point that I wasn't gaining weight. And that renewed my hope and also the hope of my parents who saw me, especially in college, coming home every couple of months, gaining 15, 20 pounds every time they saw me. And then on page five, that um, third paragraph, says, then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender, and the chance vanished. And I love this. This has a special place in my heart because this business opportunity happened in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. My home group, which actually should start in about five minutes, it's 9 a.m. in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And what happened was Bill was destitute. Nobody wanted anything to do with him, but they understood he was brilliant. He was brilliant. And they said, Bill, we need you. If you can stay sober, you don't even have to put money in. You can share in the prosperity of this deal if you can just stay sober and help us out. And he was able to do that and they were, the deal was working. And then one day they said, oh, let's celebrate. And they were passing around something called Applejack, I think it was cider or something, but it was Jersey Lightning. Jersey Lightning. And they said, Bill, you've never tried this. This is new. After all, this is the great surprise. You know, this is during Prohibition. A lot of people were home making things. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. And they passed it around again, and he refused it. And then I passed it around again. He thought, well, you know, I never have had Applejack Fighter. I've never had Jersey Lightning. And he went on a prodigious bender, and the chance vanished. I remember the NOA being, being abstinent for six, eight months, and one of my favorite binge foods was Oreos. 
I was in the grocery store, and they made Oreos into a cereal. Into a cereal. How brilliant is that? Because what do you do with Oreos? You dip them in milk, and now they're making it a cereal. And I sat there perplexed what I should do, because how could I, how could I not try Oreos cereal? I mean, that just seems insane. I'm, I've never had an opportunity to try it before. And then I ate it, and I went off on another prodigious bender, and for months could not get abstinent again. So I could relate into this idea that this time will be different. I'm going to try this. I'm going to be able to control it. And then the next paragraph on page five, I saw I could not take so much as one drink. And before I came to LA, I saw that. I saw that if I opened that bag of Doritos, I was going to eat the whole thing. And I knew the battle was, can I not open that bag of Doritos? You know, that experiment in more about alcoholism, about try to stop, try to eat and stop abruptly, I would do that at babysitting jobs. I would go into their pantry and have three Oreos and go back and try to watch TV and not have any more. And then I would go back and just, okay, I'm just going to have three more and then I'm going to stop. So eventually I had to push the cookies to the front of the sleeve so that people wouldn't realize how much of the cookies that I, that I ate. So I, even though I didn't understand what a compulsive reader was, I understood that I couldn't take one. He has not met Dr. Silkworth yet, yet he's able to see he can't take one. And I said here at the end of that paragraph, I meant business, and so I did. Every time I put it down, you could have hooked me up to a lie detector. I meant business. I was not going to do this again. This was the end. But I had this disease that I didn't understand. And I would make that exception for one, and I would be lost. I remember making the decision soon after I got home from college that I couldn't diet anymore. Because dieting meant gaining weight. Because abstaining was so painful that once I picked up that spring back was such that if I lost 15, I would put on 20. If I lost 20, I'd put on 30. So the only way I knew not to gain weight was to not diet. So at the end of page five, it says, renewing my resolve, I tried again. Sometimes passed, and the confidence began to replace my cocksuredness. I could laugh at the gym mill. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time at all, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time. But I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. I could laugh at the gym mill. I could laugh at Dunkin' Donuts. I could laugh at all the places I've been. I can go in there. No big deal. Look at me. I'm thin. Who cares? And this is an OA I'm talking about. Because my OA program was a bunch of slogans. I didn't work. I tried to work the steps, sort of, kind of. But my, my real way that I kept abstinent was by, be, by fear, scaring myself by hearing other people's stories, and fellowship. And that was just by luck I was staying abstinent. So I could laugh at the gym notes, but then, once I made that exception, once that I said I can afford the calories, not understanding the allergy of the body, I'd be beating my hand on the bar, beating my hand on my coffee table, wondering how in the world all these wrappers are empty around me. And it says the, rem the next paragraph on page six, the first full paragraph, the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning were unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly crossed the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck 
for it was scarcely daylight. All my, an all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were, were stilled at last. You know, I didn't even need to ingest my binge foods to get that, that feeling to a certain extent. One of my favorite binge foods, I have a lot of favorite binge foods, obviously, was icing. So I would go to the grocery store and I would buy icing and cake mix. No intention of making a cake. I just thought the lady would believe me better that I was making a cake if I bought both. And I would stand in line and I could feel my shoulders relax just knowing that the icing was in my cart. That was enough for my rising nerves to still at last. And at the last second before she rung me up, I would always throw in M&Ms because I need to have something from the time I, I get in my car to the time I get to my parents' house so I can go up into my bedroom and open up the icing. So those, that was the only thing that saved me. So at the bottom of that same paragraph on page six, should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. So once again, should I kill myself? No, not now. He was laughing at the people jumping out of the towers, and now he's wondering if he shouldn't kill himself. I was wondering if maybe I should just jump in front of a car because this is too painful to, to live in this, in this life I was living, which is how I did try to kill myself. And luckily that I was a good driver. Um, and gin would fix that. Food was my solution. Food was not my problem. When, when I, my nerves were rising, rising, when I was restless, I was irritable and discontent, that was because I was trying to keep the food down. And what fixed that? The gin. The gin is what fixed that. So at the, um, at the bottom of that same page, he's getting to the point now where he says, somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I leap. So once again, now he doesn't even trust himself not to kill himself. And then on page 7, that first full paragraph, um, that's when he meets Dr. Silkworth. It says, I met a kind doctor who explained, though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill, bodily and mentally. And that next paragraph, it says, My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I stared forth with high hopes. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. This is me when I came to OA, and I heard that I had a disease. Now, OA did not explain my disease very well, but at least I understood these people ate like I ate, and they weren't bad people, so maybe I'm not a bad person either. He's saying and he even made a little money. I even got some weight off and got a couple of boyfriends. Because once, once again, that's what, what drives me, is being popular, getting the boyfriend. But that next paragraph... But it was not. Self-knowledge did not. Being told I was a compulsive overeater didn't do it for me. Being explained that I shouldn't eat certain substances didn't do it for me. But it was not for the frightful day came when I drank once more. And then he goes into, um, into the hospital one more time, and he overhears Dr. Silkworth telling Lois that she's either going to have to give him over to the undertaker or to the asylum. The bottom of page seven, they did not need to tell me. I knew it almost welcomed the idea. So we have gone from page one, where he's laughing at the people jumping from the towers. He's thinking, should I kill myself? Not now. He's dragging his mattress down in case he leaps, and now he's welcoming death. That is the progression of the illness. That is what the hours of the body and the obsession of the mind and that vicious cycle will bring us to. So on the top of page... The first paragraph on page 8 is one of the most beautiful descriptions I've heard of step 1. 
It says, no one can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched all around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had, I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Food was got to the point that every decision I made was based around food. The way I went to work depended on what restaurants I went by. What invitations I took depended on what people were serving. Where, you know, I was so into exercise that I, all the plans I had were based around when I could get to the gym and not get to the gym. You know, I, I had food hidden throughout the house so that I knew because I lived with a mother who was in OA, so I had to have non-perishable, I mean, yes, non-perishable stuff hidden around the house so I could have it because I couldn't keep anything in the refrigerator because she would know about it. And he said, so that you would think at this point he would stop, right? Alcohol was his master. It says, trembling, I stepped from the hospital, broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidiousness of the first drink on our Mrs. Day, 1934, I was off again. So this kind of breaks that fellowship idea of remember your last drink. If you remember your last drink, you won't drink again. Or the idea of if we tell enough war stories, then we're going to stay sober. It's not. Fear will sober us for a short amount of time. But that obsession of the mind will become so loud that we will pick up again. And so now we're going to transition into step two. Bill gets a call from Ebby, his old drinking buddy. And Ebby tells him he's sober. And he's like, I can't believe it. That he's amazed. And he invites him over. Not because he wants to see how he got sober. He invites him over because at this point he is so isolated in his apartment that he's like, okay, this is my drinking bike. I can relive the days that it was fun. Don't we do that? We, we keep wanting to sink back to the days when food was fun. When we were out with girlfriends at a movie and we were giggling about the movie and eating the popcorn versus the times when we were adults, when we're sitting in a dark you know, movie theater, binging our brains out with nobody around. So he wants to be reminded of those good days. And he was unmindful of the welfare of his friend who finally got sober. And when he opens up that door on page 9, that first full paragraph, the door opened and he stood there, fresh-skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What happened? Because I'm sure that Bill had seen Eddie sober before, just as Bill had seen, Eddie had seen Bill sober before. And I don't know if you've had this experience. I have it all the time. I'm in an OA meeting and there's someone sitting next to me and they share that they've been absent for three years, two months, 14 days, and 15 minutes. And the anxiety coming off of them is like palpable. And then you have someone on the other side of the shares they've been, they've been abstinent and through the steps in six months. And they're calm and they're laughing and they're joyful. Because when we're a dry drunk, we're miserable. When we found this recovery program, we are happy, we are joyous, we are free. That's what he was seeing. He was inexplicably different because he wasn't just sober. He had had a transformation. And that's why I say, well, what would what, you do? And he says, I've got religion. Towards the end of page nine, I was aghast, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot, I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that story I looked, yes, the old boy was on fire, but bless his heart, let him ramp, besides my gin would last longer than his preaching. And God knows when people tried to talk to me about my weight, whether it was a professional or a family member, one time my mom came in my room when I, and I had all my binge foods underneath my blankets as my mom came in and her hands were shaking and she was reading from the paper and I just couldn't wait for her to go out of the room. And I found out years later she brought home her beginner's meeting 
from an LA meeting and tried to give me a beginner's meeting. I, I, I just wanted her out of the room so I could keep binging. I couldn't hear it from my mother. It says, but he did know ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea, the solution, and a practical program of action that was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. That was two months ago. The steps were not meant to be done over years. The steps were meant to be done in a short period of time because we are holding our breath underwater once we put the food down. And we're going to see different examples throughout the big book of short periods of time where people put the food down or the liquor down and they get recovered. It's not supposed to be a step a year. It's not supposed to be the fourth step is a college dissertation that you hand in after a year and a half of research. So it says on the top of page 10, I was shocked but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be for I was hopeless. That was the posture. He was hopeless. That was the only reason he was open. Which unfortunately is why until the food beats us in that state of reasonableness, normally we're not open to a solution. As long as we think there's a door number three, why would we try the spiritual solution? We'll pick the familiarity and the misery of being a compulsive overeater over something that we don't know which scares us to death until we know we don't have any options. Topic 10, he talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before him. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays way over there on the hillside. So I had to look at, you know, for myself in the beginning, I'm looking at what are those childhood memories. You know, I went through 12 years of, of Catholic schools, and I did not, this was something I heard a speaker say and formulated what I felt as a child. You know, I would go into church and I would see this cross with Jesus on it, and I would look at it and I would think, if this is what God did to his only son, what is he going to do to me? What is he going to do to me if this is what he does to someone he loves? And that was what I thought of God was. God was waiting for me to screw up. He was waiting to damn me to hell. I was taught all the reasons that I was going to be damned to hell. And I spent a lifetime trying to avoid God because I knew I was a dirty little sinner. So yes, I had a relationship with God, but it was a sick one. The other thing I often talk about with this part is we have to look at what are our prejudices of OA? What are those things in OA that are holding us back? Do we think that OA is just attending meetings and sharing about our day? Do we think that these steps are something that are optional? Do we think that we can do the steps in whatever order we want? Is our, is, is OA, our idea of OA based on people's opinions and not on this program of recovery? Those were a lot of the prejudices I had to look at. At the bottom of the pages, it says, of page 10, when they talked of the God personal to me who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated, and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. And that's what would happen. I believed in this religious God that I visited on Sunday at 11.15 in the morning in Morristown, New Jersey. But I had no personal God. I, I did not have access to a power to help me with my problems. God's job was world hunger. He had no time for kids' hunger. And that was a block. And on the top of page 11, and once again, I think of this along to, with OA. It says, to Christ I conceded the certainty of a great man. So to OA, I conceded the certainty of a great program, not too closely followed by those who claimed him, not too closely followed by the people I saw in the rooms. There was a lot of fat serenity in the rooms um, when I came in. 
his moral teaching most excellent. Yes, the teaching of, of the 12 steps seemed most excellent. But for myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult, and the rest I disregarded. That explained to me why the steps never worked. Because the steps, I wasn't working the steps. I did which was convenient. I loved doing one, two, and three. That was fun. I could identify you and tell you my funny food stories. You could tell me your funny food stories. We could bitch and moan about God. We could say we were making a decision, but I could never get into those action steps. And specifically, six and seven was, for me, how can I control, how can I control my character defects? And I'm only going to apologize to the people I think will work out well. And my fourth step was basically a, a, a self-history. Once again, I'm the oldest child, so this is why I'm like this. I went to Catholic schools, this is why I was like this. I never had a boyfriend, so this is why I was like this. So I did not do the program as presented. I did the program that was convenient for me. So down on, further down on page 11 in that sec, third full paragraph, it says his human will had failed. He had to admit complete defeat. That was where I had to get to. That's where I got to three years ago when I broke my ankle and was bedbound and the most pain I've ever been in my life and I discovered a phone meeting that told me the real solution, told me the actual solution in this big book and didn't give people's opinions. I had failed. I had been completely defeated. And that paragraph, had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. For there had been no power in him and there wasn't me at that minute and there was none at all. Eddie did not need to tell Bill about his story. Eddie and Bill had the same story. They grew up together. So Eddie did not need to teach him about the hours of the body obsession of the mind because, because Bill understood they were the same person. Eddie is not part of the first 100 because he got drunk again. He had the solution and he had the plan of action, but he didn't understand his true problem because he didn't have Dr. Silkworth, which is what Bill had. So Bill had the problem at this point from Dr. Silkworth. He understood because he knew Eddie, they had the same problem, and he was able to grab on that solution and that plan of action that Eddie gave him, and he was able to recover. So on the um, bottom of 11, it says, I saw that my friend was much more inwardly reorganized, that he was on a different footing. His roots grasp new soil. That is where we have to get to. If my roots are grasping the fellowship only, if my roots are grasped in the tools only, the tools are supposed to be ways that we work the steps. We use phone calls to work the steps. We go to meetings to learn about the steps. We have a sponsor to guide us through the steps. If we are using the tools, thinking the tools in themselves are going to keep us safe, that is not, our roots aren't going to grasp a bigger soil. Our roots have to grasp God. God is where we're going to be on a different footing. Not on the footing of, oh, I belong to a vision for you, therefore I'm going to recover, or I, you know, I, um, you know, I have the best sponsor, therefore I'm going to recover, or I can sponsor 16 people, and therefore that's going to keep me safe. We have to be grounded in God. And the, the analogy I like to use now is I live in New Jersey, so when Superstorm Sandy came raging through, it was terrifying. And when I walked out of my house that next morning, I live in a very old neighborhood, um, some of the houses on my street were built in the 1700s. So we have these huge trees that are 100 years old. And I looked at them, and they were pulled over. They didn't even snap. The water had saturated the ground so badly that it was uprooted 
and the roots were pulled out, and these huge trees took down some houses in my neighborhood. So I have to think about that. Am I going to water down my program so much that my roots cannot grasp that soil enough, that my, soil, my roots have to be grasped solely in the higher power? And if I water it down, thinking that these outside human aid things are going to keep me sustained, that, that, that soil is going to get so saturated that the next time life happens, and it will, I'm going to be pulled over like those huge trees were in Hurricane Sandy. So then, Bill, then Eddie asked Bill that, that magical question we all love in the middle of page 12. Why don't you choose your own conception of God? It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required to make my beginning. This is something I think that we, we, we kind of get confused on in a way. Is the difference between step two and step 11. Step two is just recognizing I need a power. That's all it is. I need a power. I don't have to define that power. I don't have to feel connected to that power. In fact, if we could go from step two to step 11, why would we even need steps three through 10? Why? What we are going to do is we are going to acknowledge we need a power, which will propel us to make a decision to take the action steps so we can get access to that power. So in Hurricane Sandy, when I didn't have electricity for seven, seven days, I have electricity. I mean, I have light switches in my house. I have light bulbs. I have a TV. And I can flip those switches all I want. But until that power was restored, I wasn't going to get access to that power. And that's how my experience is in the way that the book is presented. You can know that the power is out there. That's what step two is. You realize that there's a power out there that's greater than yourself. But until you take those action steps, to clear away all the crap you've put between you and the higher power, you're not going to get access to that power. So right now he's acknowledging that he needs that power. So let's go to the top of, top of 13. Let's look at what he does. What are the rest of the steps that he needs to do so he can access that, that power? At the top of 13 it says, at the hospital I was separated from alcohol for the last time. Once again, we have to put the food down first. We have to. I don't know if you've ever known anyone that's gotten a DUI, but if you ask someone, well, what happened? You think they're going to say, oh, I decided to get shit-faced and drive. Ha, ha, ha. No, they normally say, well, I just had a beer for dinner. I just had a couple glasses of wine. I didn't realize I was impaired. Well, that's what we have to get. We might think we're okay, but if we're still eating our binge foods, we don't have the clarity of mind to make that decision. We don't have the clarity of mind to do these action steps. We have to put the food down first. So I'm going to continue down. Let's identify what those steps are. There I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him. To do with me as I would, I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing and that without him I was lost. That's step three. That is step three. Offering ourselves, no strings attached. For years, I used step three as, okay, God, I'm going to turn my life and my will over to you. That cute guy that I like, make him like me. That job that I want, I want to get it. I want to make sure that I get down to a size 12 by the time that I'm in this wedding. I used step three as a way that I was God and I was making God my errand boy. I am offering myself to God, no strings attached. The word unreservedly. And then for his care and direction, I should be getting direction from God, not giving God direction. 
Now, once again, this is when Bill did not work the steps. Bill worked just the six tenets. So I'm going to show you where our steps developed out of, but they're not exactly in the order because he was working the six tenets of the Oxford group. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. That's step six and seven. He ruthlessly faced his sins. We admitted our character defects in six and seven, and we asked God to remove them root and branch. What I did was I tried to identify those, those uh, character defects, and then I tried to change them. I tried to control them. You know, my father is a big gardener. He does the gardening in my backyard. I, I was having dandelions, and I was pulling them out. He was like, Kim, you can't do that. They're going to come back. And he gave me this weird-looking, like, hoe-looking thing. And he said, you've got to dig down and get the roots out. If you don't get the roots out, they're simply going to flower again. Well, that's the truth with our character defects. We have to let God remove them root and branch. Because if we try to control it, they're just going to come back. And they still will come back. We're still human beings. And we, the only way we can get rid of them is to give them to God. It says, my schoolmate visited me, and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. That's step four and five. We made a list of people who I had hurt or from whom I felt resentment, step eight. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals, admitting my wrong. Never was I to be critical of them, as I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. That's step nine. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. That is step 10. So step 10 is every single day. Every single day. Not just when we're panicked. Not when we're just upset about something. We, it becomes a part of our, our everyday life to ask God, ask God, ask God. Test my thinking. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me be. Because we learned in step four, selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our trouble. So we're now asking God to help for direction and strength on how we can do his will, not our will. Never was I to pray for myself except as my request for to my usefulness to others. Only then might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter into a new relationship with my creator. So this is step 11. So once again, when we were done with the steps, we can't skip and we can't use this, this step as a twister game where it's right foot yellow and left foot blue. When these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator. I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. Belief in the power of God, plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things where the simple, essential requirements. Simple but not easy, a price had to be paid. It meant the destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn all things to the Father of life who presides over us all. Recovery is not convenient. It's necessary. I am forced to do this because I will die without it. It is not convenient. On the top of 14 again, these were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. A great queen wind came off the mountaintop. And a, a good friend of mine, which is on the line today, always points out on page, he's having this white light experience. And on page 15, if you touch 14 to 15, you're going to see where he says, I was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. So even as a recovered man, life didn't stop happening. He had this white light mountain experience, and then he was plagued 
by waves of self-pity and resentment. On page 15 I'm reading now, this sometimes nearly drove me back to drink, but I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. It is a design for living that works in rough going. And I'm going to go back to that last line on 14. It says, um, if an alcoholic fails to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through the work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. And if he drank, he would surely die. And faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. Being a recovered person is an amazing benefit and gift. But I have to tell you, I understand that I'm forced to do it. I understand that my life depends on this. And I have been recovered now for three years and had 17 years of going in and out of the fellowship. And my observation of what my life was like 17, for 17 years and what it was like for three and what I've seen other people is the main pe- reason people go back to the food is two things. One, 10, and 11 becomes a panic button. They only do it when they're in hot water. And 12, they stop working with new people. They stop carrying the message. And, that, and that, what I'm becoming more aware of recently, it's not even just not having sponsees. You've got to work with newcomers. I know so many people that have two and three sponsees they've had for four or five years. They're not working the steps anymore. They're girlfriends. They're hanging out. They're going to lunch. They're meeting after meetings. Carrying this message means we have to get those new people. We have to help the people who've been around for 17 years like me to help them find a solution. That is what's going to keep us in recovery. That is why living in 10, 11, and 12 is not necessary, just reading 10, 11, and 12. And then later in uh, 15, on that last paragraph, about three lines down, the joy of living we really have under pressure and difficulty. And on page 16, I'm going to read the last two paragraphs to end this up. It says, there is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. I suppose some would be shocked at our seeming worldliness and levity. But just underneath, there is a deadly earnestness. Faith has to work 24 hours a day in and through us, or we perish. Most of us feel we need to look no further for utopia. We have it right here and now. Each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And um, that is all I'm going to say, and I hope that you now know that Bill's story is your story and my story, and the story of every person that is a compulsive overeater. And with that, I pass. Kim, thank you so much for this beautiful, thorough, and revealing study of Bill's story. We now open the floor for any questions you might have regarding the program of recovery and Bill's story as it relates to the recovery process. Star one to unmute if you have a question for Kim this morning. This is Jackie from West Virginia. Hi, Jackie. Go ahead. I have heard the the stories of uh, terminal uniqueness and but inside me, I still say, well, suppose it doesn't work for me. Suppose, just suppose, suppose, suppose. And how do I get past that? Thank you. 
Well, I'll, I'll just share with you what someone told me. Um, thanks for the question, Jackie. Um, is how arrogant am I to think that this book that was published in 1939 that has not been changed in 78 years and four editions and has worked for millions of people who have food problems, alcohol problems, drug problems, sex problems, gambling problems, how arrogant am I to think it won't work for me? And I did not realize that was a form of arrogance to think that I was that unique that this would not work. And I also had to look at the fact was, was it really not working or was I really just doing what I had talked about before, what was convenient and what I didn't like, I disregarded. And I almost had to get to the point where I dared the steps to work. I dared them to work. I will do it exactly as you're telling me to do it and we'll see. We'll see if it works. So I just want to challenge you, Jackie. If, if you're not sure, the, the steps are not based on you believing them. The steps are not based on you having a complete faith in them. The steps are based on you doing the work as presented in the book. And just dare yourself to try it. Thank you, Jackie, for the question. And thank you. Who's next? This is Sarah Masher. Yes, Sarah, with a question. Thank you. Yes, I do have a question. Um, I think uh, what I what I come up with with a lot of people is that they have fear of failure and fear of success. And um, I, I was hoping that Kim would address that a little bit. Um, I think maybe it pertains a little bit to Jackie's question a little bit too, but also the idea um, that I, I just want to let Kim, Kim know what a beautiful job she did in presenting Bill's story and bringing us to a place where we can really identify in, and I thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Um, you know, fear of success and fear of failure, I think, is a common experience whether you're a compulsive overeater or not. Um, I, I think that's very common. I, and personally, I'm more afraid of success than failure. I'm very good at failure. I do misery really, really well. Um, success terrifies me. Um, but I think, once again, it's that idea that we get down to that point where the, the food has beat us into a state of reasonableness, and we're afraid. And we're going to notice door number one and door number two. And until we get down to that point, unfortunately, most uh, compulsive overeaters will not take action. Um, so I feel, as a recovered person, the best that I can do is present the problem, the solution, and the plan of action. And hopefully, if someone's ears are open to it, they're going to hear it. And if they're not, you know, then hopefully they'll stick around until their ears are opened. Um, but I always do try to stay away from any... I have a psychology degree, so I try to stay away from psychology terms like fear of success, fear of failure, you know, passive-aggressive, family of origin stuff. I really try to stick to the big book because I can complicate things a lot. So the way the big book says it, I'm just going to read on page 25, it says, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, so you have to believe yourself a, ser a serious alcoholic, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid. We had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. 
And when I recognized that that intolerable situation was not being ensued, that intolerable situation is being abstinent, that the restlessness, the irritability, the discontentment, not being comfortable in my own skin, being afraid of failure, being afraid of success, that was so untenable that I had two options. One is to blot out the consciousness, pick up the food, and one was to go to spiritual health, which is pick up the steps. So when I get to that place where I am so terrified and I realize I have one solution, I I have two options, pick up the food, work the steps, pick up the food, work the steps. And I wish there was a way I could give that to someone, but I can't. But that is the only, that's the only thing I have experienced and I have seen is when, is when people get down to those two options that they're willing to take action. Um, and I hope that helps. Thank you, Sarah, for the question. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Hi, Kim. I have a question for you. This is Janice in Pennsylvania. Hi, Janice. Hi. I, you know, I've I've heard you um, refer to like you sponsor someone for a while, and then you become friends, and and I've sponsored a couple people for a long time, and um, they still commit their food to me. They they still, you know, they're still working the program, and I'm curious how you sponsor. Um, like for me, I need to call my food into my sponsor every day, and that works for me, and I do work the steps and and stuff like that. And I'm just wondering, like, how that looks like for you. Like, after you've worked the steps with a sponsee, like, what? Do, how does that relationship change or go on? That would be really helpful. Thanks. Well, I, I want to say first, sponsorship is something that has grown out of the fellowship. The word sponsor is not in the first 164 pages. Um, there is a chapter working with others. I try to follow those directions as um, as closely as possible. And I just want to specify this is my opinion and not the big book. Um, in Dr. Bob's story, the first paragraph, it says that you know he got sober in 1935. Um, he died in 1950, and it's estimated he helped 5,000 men in that time period. That's 333 people a year. I don't think he was talking to all 300, you know, 5,000 people every single day. Um, on page 15, what I read from Bill says, sometimes you know, he was plagued by waves of, of self-pity and resentment. Sometimes that nearly drove me to drink, but I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. I believe that. Um, so, and also that idea of, of, of roots grasping new soil. I should not be dependent on a sponsor. You know, um, I sponsor very differently. What I what I do, I have prayed a lot on about how I can be most efficient in carrying the message. After my sponsees get recovered, I tell them the same thing. Get quiet with God. Ask how you can most efficiently carry this message. You know, our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. Um, so personally, I only sponsor three days a week for a half hour. Um, and what that allows me to do, my, my optimum time is at night, so I sponsor four girls actively in the work three days a week, so that means six days a week I'm an hour every night working girls through the steps. Once they are recovered, I move them to an earlier time. Once they get four or five sponsees and they're feeling comfortable, I tell them to call me when they need me. Because their recovery should not depend on me. Their recovery depends on them carrying this message. And that's why I said it's important. If you don't make 10 and 11 a part of your life, and if you don't carry this message, you're going to pick up. If, you're, if your um, dependence is still in your sponsor, then you're not dependent on God. 
Now, if what you're doing is working for you, I know a lot of people talk to their sponsors every single day. I know a lot of people have sponsors they've had for 15, 20 years. They talk to on a daily basis. You know, if that works for you, don't change it. Get quiet with God and ask how you can most efficiently carry the message. I just know the big book tells me I have to carry the message if I want to keep what I have. And if I'm only talking to recovered people, I'm not carrying the message anymore. All I'm doing is just hanging out with people that are recovered. I need to, you know, by having four girls actively in the work, I am constantly working the steps because I am I'm teaching someone step one, step two, step three. I'm, they're all in different spots in the work, so I'm constantly in this book if I'm constantly bringing new people through. And that allows me to help more people. Um, you know, and I have to say for myself, you know, when I used to sponsor on an everyday basis and everything, I mean, hardly anyone ever stayed abstinent because I was fostering codependence on me. Um, I would say in you know, the last three years, at least over half the girls that I sponsor are still, you know, have become recovered and are active members carrying this message in Overeaters Anonymous. So I know for myself I'm more effective this way. Um, you need to get with your higher power and find out what's most effective for you. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Jackie. I mean, Janice, excuse me for the question. Hi, this is Julie from this California. Is Susan. Julie, your turn, and then I hear Susan behind. Go ahead, Julie. Hi, this is Julie, a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, Kim, uh, so much for going over Bill's story with such clarity. You know, it just shows that entire transformation from that hope, state of hopelessness to living in the solution and, you know, being of service. I just, I never really got it until I came back to program this last time that I have to be of service if I'm going to stay recovered. And it's a certain type of service. I mean, I used to sponsor with these canned questions and people would slip and people would slip, not a result of the questions, but um, I never even picked up the big book or rarely picked up the big book. And, And now it's like, you know, even today, listening to you, I've got my big book in my hand and I'm looking at it going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I am just so blessed to be on this journey because, you know, I am not the woman I used to be a year ago. I'm not the woman I used to be a month ago. And it's because as I continue to grow in the understanding, um, it's like I'm just getting filled with grace. And it's a result of, yeah, I had to put that food down because I could not hear God eating six to 10,000 calories a day and purging. Um, I tried, but I was so blocked. And, um, you know, for any newcomers out there, this is amazing. And, Kim, again, thank you for um, just letting me hear the story again of Bill's transformation. And thank you for everybody on this meeting. Um, And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Julie. Susan, your turn. Yes, hi. Good morning. Thank you both so much. That was really wonderful, Kim. I have a question about doing service, uh, speaking to newcomers who make outreach calls or who I make them to. And I'm very comfortable with answering the questions that are posed to me based on the work I've done and all that I learn on a daily basis from this meeting. But I do have one question with respect to it. Some questions that come my way are, 
how would you define recovered? And it's very clear in the big book how to define it. So again, I don't have an issue with defining it. Or, uh, you know, I was abstinent and then I lost my abstinence before, during, or after Thanksgiving. And again, the big book to me lays it all out. But my question is, I know you're very emphatic about working the steps in order. And so you've, you've taught me by listening to you on these meetings to ask people where they are in the steps before I respond to their question. And oftentimes they're at step one. And defining recovered, uh, in my understanding, includes taking a look at a paragraph that's included in the Step 10 Promises or, uh, or talking about uh, the loss of abstinence after having it refers to more about alcoholism. Now, I, the way I was learned to do, taught to do Step 1, more about alcoholism, is part of Step 1, but some people disagree with that. So I guess my point is I don't want to move ahead of where the person is with their sponsor and I'm not I'm not sure what my role is in that outreach call in your opinion. Thanks. Susan, just to clarify, so where are you in the steps? I'm uh, up to the sex turning over my step sex inventory in step five. And did you just say you picked up after Thanksgiving? I did not, no. Thankfully, I have okay. neutrality today okay. around food. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, one of the, one of the things... You know, I, I was saying... I'm sorry. I was just... I was saying that people who've called me will tell me they're either not abstinent or I've called them or they picked up when they were abstinent. And I'm just asking if they picked up when they were abstinent. To me, that's, you know, partly a doctor's opinion thing, but it's also a, a Fred... And uh, the other guy whose name Jim Stork, you know, I, I bring that in to the conversation. So now I'll stop talking, but I just wanted to clarify that, that my question okay. is, is that appropriate? Okay. Okay. Well, I, I think that, once again, it's, there is a difference between the fellowship and the book. So there, there's going to be varying opinions. Um, I often tell my sponsees to stay quiet until they get to step 10 because... I don't want them. To, I want them to focus on what they're doing. Not to say they don't make outreach calls, and I try to get them to outreach to recovered people. I want them to talk to recovered people, mention where they are in the book, and ask them to work. You know, can you help me understand this part of the book? Um, my opinion is you can do more of a service to get through the steps yourself than you can trying to answer people's questions if you're not comfortable answering them. You know, the, the, the steps are meant to be done quickly. So, you know, if you can get through the steps in two or three months, you're going to, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable answering questions like that. Um, I like to use the book because I find I have a very strong opinion and that's not always helpful. So I always like to, you know, go to the book. So what I, I do is I, I that's, that's that um, sentence, I, our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. So I am always trying to learn this book better so that I can bring it alive for people. You know, listening to podcasts, I go to an AA, go to AA meetings that are really strong, as well as LA meetings, even though I'm not an alcoholic. Um, I seek out um, people that are knowledgeable, and I ask them questions. And I think for people that are going through the process, sometimes it's a humility just to say, you know what, I'm really not sure of that answer, but there's some people that have helped me 
can, why don't you give them a call? You know, um, I know you want to know what recovered is. I'm not there yet. I, I'm, I have not, I am not recovered yet, so it might be better for you to ask someone who is recovered because they can explain it to you experientially. I can only explain it to you intellectually because I haven't had that experience yet. So a lot of times for me, it's, it's humility. You know, lean into the step that you're in, acknowledge where you're not, and then offer people that, that you make outreach phone calls um, to be a pointer to those who who may have an answer that you're not comfortable answering. And I hope that helps, Susan. Susan, thank you for the question. Any other questions this morning for Kim? Hi, this is Teresa. Teresa, your turn. Good morning, Kim. Um, I've heard you use the, uh, the image before of having a menage a trois with Ben and Jerry, and the first time I ever heard you say that, I laughed because, uh, well, I smiled because I did that too. I, I had that image too. Like long before I came into OA, there would be uh, nights where, you know, maybe let's say I had a bad date. And, oh, I wasn't going home with that person, but I would grab Ben and Jerry and that would make me feel well. Or I would go out with friends and uh, um, I'd be the third or the fifth wheel. And instead of going home alone, I would go home with Ben and Jerry. And so um, it would it would it would uh, fulfill this uh, this wanting for um, intimacy in a way. So I very much get that image. But now that you are in um, recovery, and it says that when we're in recovery, you know, sometimes we can still be plagued by self pity and resentment. And one of the things that I I wonder is, you know, when I become recovered, and you know, if those feelings hit. What will I? What What is it like to deal with that type of uh, that type of uh, lack of intimacy when you're not reaching for a Ben and Jerry? How you basically? How do you deal with loneliness um, on that intimate level, and not just like genuine fellowship and the friendship you find with with a program, but like that intimate longing that sometimes food also fulfilled or seemed to fulfill. Great question, Teresa. Um, I'm actually 46 years old, and I've never been married. So I've, you know, um, I've never even been close to being married. Um, so what I find is once you once you're recovered and you're living in 10, 11, and 12, you're you're starting to have an intimacy with God. You're starting to have a idea that you're never alone. And the biggest problem I had with wanting a boyfriend was I always felt alone. I never feel alone anymore. Do I wish I had an intimate partner, you know, um, and, a, and a, you know, a companion? Absolutely. In fact, I've been using um, a new concept I got um, from, once again, always looking for new ways to uh, grow in this program. I was at a retreat, and this gentleman was talking about how using Step 10 to make decisions. And I had never done that before. I, I always used it as a way to handle a disturbance that was going on. So I'm trying to work a Step 10 right now about dating again and what would that would look like as a 46-year-old woman to start dating again. Um, but I, above all else, I know that, that that is a place like Bill with the money that I get really vulnerable and I can idolize. So I need, know I need to dig deeper into my program so I feel that connection with God so I would be going into a relationship to connect with someone versus trying to fill a lack. If I go into a relationship trying to fill a lack, that's dangerous. Um, so what I find is that recovery is so fills my life that I am never lonely. If anything, I am overly busy um, and feeling connected with people in different ways, and I know I need to make an effort to um, 
make an effort to uh, to ask God what He wants from me as far as finding a relationship with a guy. Um, but that whole, you know, and this is my opinion again, but this, this whole Hollywood thing, you know, with, you know, oh, you complete me and all this kind of crap, it just puts all this stuff in our head. Um, and just a funny story, just to show you, I mean, recovery doesn't mean you're not crazy still to a certain extent. And a few, God, I don't know what it was, like six, eight months ago, I started reading those Fifty Shades of Grey stories, and that is not a good thing to read when you're when you're single. And I got really worked up over them, and I was on Facebook, and an old boyfriend from my, my mid-20s, I found him, and I um, Facebooked him, and then as soon as I Facebooked him, I went, God's will be done. And I'm like, that wasn't God's will. I did whatever the heck I wanted. And then I said, God, clean this up for me. Clean it up. You know, so we're still going to be, I love step 11 where it says we will pay for these things and all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. And I still do. But if I keep bringing it back to God, and I keep understanding that God will be my, my comfort, God will be my ease, then I can enter in any relationship wanting to celebrate what God has given me versus expecting that person to fulfill where I feel lacking. And that was a kind of long answer, but I hope that made sense to you, Teresa. Absolutely. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Teresa, for the question. Who's next? Star one to unmute. Hi, I have a question. This is Lisa Renee from South Jersey. Good morning, Lisa Renee. Go ahead. Good morning. Kim, wonderful, excellent job. Thank you so much. I'm so proud of my Jersey girl. But anyway, my (laughs) question... My question is, could you clarify what you were explaining when Ebby came to um, talk to Bill and Ebby was recovered, um, but how Ebby wasn't a part of the first 100 because he picked up again. And the reason was he didn't understand. I just, I'm not sure if, I'm, if I heard you correctly. The reason was because he didn't understand who he was, like the allergy of the body and obsession of the mind, like he had the spiritual part, but he didn't understand the physical. Is that what you were saying? Well, this is just from research that I've done. So once again, this is more um, what I what I have heard. But anyone who was not not stay sober was not pers- a part of the first 100. So, for example, Roland Hazard has a very big part in um, there the solution, but he's not part of the first 100 because he went out again too. Um, what Eddie had, you know, any problem-solving process. There's three things you need to know. One, what is the problem? Two, is what is the solution? And three, is what is the uh, plan of action. Eddie only had the last two. You know, he was told by Roland, who was told by Carl, that he was hopeless, but he didn't fully understand the interaction of the physical and the mental part of the disease. Um, from what I what I've been told and what I've researched is when Bill was out with Bob spending that time, that three months out there, um, Eddie picked up. Um, and Ebby, Bill always thought of Ebby as his sponsor, and I think Ebby did die sober, if I'm not mistaken, but he did have that, you know, times that he would go back into the drink. Um, so I always like to look at Dr. Bob, too, because when Bill went to Bob and Bill told him about the grave nature of this illness, and Bob's like, oh, my God, this is the first person who understood. What do I have to do? And when Bill told him, Bill was shocked that Bob was already in the Oxford group. So Bob had been trying to work the solution to the program of action, but he didn't know the problem. The reason I relate into so much for that is for 17 years in OA, I was told the solution was God. I was told the plan of action was the steps. 
but I believe personally the reason I didn't work them with the tenacity I needed to is because I really didn't understand what a compulsive overeater was. And since I really didn't understand what a compulsive overeater was, I didn't have the urgency to seek that solution and to seek to do the steps specifically as they're outlined. Um, so that is what Eddie was missing. Um, and Eddie did go back to drink um, on multiple occasions from what I've seen in the history. Does that answer it? Yes, thank you so much. I just really appreciate your thorough presentation, and I love all the historical uh, researching you did. It really added a lot to, your st to the story. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa, Renee. Anyone else this morning? Questions for Kim? Lauren? <laughs> Sharon, may I share? Lauren and then Sharon, please. Thank you. Hi, Kim. Uh, this is Lauren, a recovered compulsive overeater from Pennsylvania. And oh my gravy, Kim, I just adored that presentation. It was wonderful and um, it was a lot of fun to go along in the big book. When I, um, uh, I, I hope this relates to the story, but as well, um, I was looking over working with others and it says when you're working with um, someone who desires to stop and, you know, how to talk to them, how to relate to them, your story. And right now I'm guiding women through the big book, but there are two women who are still in the food. And I've really, and I've dealt with this quite a lot since becoming a sponsor with women who just plead and they want it so bad recovery but they just can't stop. And I'm also working with other women, and I've worked with other women who are who do have the food down and are going through the big book, and it is so inspiring to see that recovery. I struggle with really knowing how to carry the message to compulsive overeaters, but also to just how to guide women though who aren't willing to put the food down. And um, I know this is a problem that keeps coming up for me as a sponsor. Um, so thank you very much. I'll pass. Thank you, Lauren. Um, you know, step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics. Thank you, God, that the only requirement for step 12 is I have to try to carry the message not whether someone receives it or not. You know, my belief is that as a recovered person, my job is to maintain the integrity of this message, to give someone an adequate presentation of the big book. And whether or not they choose to do anything with it is none of my business. The big book is clear. If, if the person's not willing to put the food down, there's nothing we can do. So the only thing I can do is adequately tell them what their disease is Maybe they're not a compulsive overeater, too. I mean, I think it's really essential that we understand there's a lot of hard eaters in OA that maybe can stay sober on meetings and phone calls. Because if, if you can stay sober on meetings and phone calls and be happy, you're probably not a compulsive overeater. You're probably not as seriously alcoholic as, as we are or as I am. I'm not capable of staying sober on meetings and phone calls. Um, but all we have to do is present it. And I, I also, once again, you know, I, I'm confronted over and over again with my arrogance because I want to see the results. 
you know, and I always talk about there was a meeting that I went to a couple years into my years in OA, and I was talking to this woman afterwards, and I was telling her all the things that I binged on, and she calmly listened to me, and then she said, did you ever notice all those foods have flour in it? And I wanted to rip her head off. I was so angry, and I have no idea who this woman is. I might even know, I, I was so angry, I was so blinded, I can't remember her name, but that woman saved my life because she got me to look at something I was unwilling to look at and didn't take action on for quite a few months. So I just realized that all I can do is present the material, ask God into it, and whether or not they get it or not is none of my business, and whether they get it so I can see it or whether they get it later where someone else is going to be able to see the beauty of that recovery is also none of my business. I hope that helps. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Lauren. Sharon, your turn. This is, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Kim. Thank you so much. Um, I just really appreciated the way you went through Bill's story. And, you know, I'm, I'm taking this book seriously now, so I'm writing all kinds of notes. So, you know, as many times as I've read Bill's story, I never quite picked up on the the steps that are incorporated right there in his his story. And <clears throat> I do have a question for you. You've helped me so much because I'm one of those that has been around OA for a long time and and uh, just didn't get it and didn't connect the dots. And um, even though I had that uh, gift in another program. So I am beginning to sponsor. I am through the uh, nine steps and am now um, living in the growth steps. And... I have a question regarding um, how you sponsor. I know you say you do it three times a week and for a half hour. So I am um, just wondering if you uh, go through them, starting with the very beginning of the book, you know, the first edition, um, everything like that, and then how are, um, you know, I'm meeting with them like that, just doing the steps. And so... I just want to make sure how you're doing it so that they are able to get through that process. When I finally started with the sponsor that I'm with now, it was uh, six months to get me to that point of, of being through the ninth step. And also, um, my other question is, <clears throat> if in those early early beginning times they do um, have a slip, you know, I'm trying to go back and use uh, Jim in that story as an example. I'm trying to determine you know, okay, let's go back and see what went on. But I'm just curious what, how you do that, and then if they keep uh, struggling with the food, how, how you do that. <laughs> Thanks. And I pass. Thanks, Sharon. Um, once again, I just want to say sponsoring is something you have to get quiet with God about how you're effective. I hesitate sharing a lot about what I do in the sense that, you know, it's, it's, it's how I have become most effective. I, I really encourage people to read that chapter, um, working with others, because it gives us really clear-cut ideas of how to present the material. Um, I found when I gave my opinion a lot, people didn't do well. So I do follow the book. We start at the beginning. Um, I personally use the doctor's opinion as a way to qualify someone um, to see if they are a compulsive over, see if they identify in enough that they feel that they need this program. Because if they don't identify in and they don't feel like they need this program, there's really no reason to continue. So I use that as a real qualifier. Um, and then just simply lead them through the book. 
you know. And if I get confused, I go back and I read working with others again. Um, just want to pick up one thing that you said though that people who have a slip, I don't believe in slips personally. Um, I believe that you succumb to the desire again, as, as the big book says, that we make a conscious choice. I have never walked through a, a my kitchen and had a brownie throw itself in my mouth. I've always made a decision to take that wrapper off and to put it in my mouth. And I think that we do a disservice to people to say that people slip. It's a decision. It's a decision. And we have to understand that we have to be willing to be uncomfortable in the abstinence long enough to get through the steps, which is why there's such an urgency to get through the steps. Um, if my sponsees are in you know, steps one and two, uh, you know, I, we go over that again. I ask them if they're done for good. You know, if they're telling me they're done until their daughter's wedding so they can fit in the dress, if they tell me that they're done until they get down 20 pounds, that they're not ready. Um, I would say, for the most part, I get fired a lot uh, because I, if someone picks up or if someone is not doing what I'm asking, then you know, if someone calls me, for example, and I give them an assignment, and they say, oh, I, I'm calling, but I didn't have time to do my assignment. Okay, well, that's okay. Well, you call me when the assignment's done. I don't talk to them unless the assignment's done. I don't have time. I'm not a girlfriend. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a, you know, a banker or whatever that, that phrase is in, in the big book. Uh, so I will throw assignments at people. You know, God bless this Vision for You program. If, if they've picked up after they've been asked for a few weeks, Go listen to Lori's talk about more about alcoholism. Go back to um, you know, 2013 and the beginning of the year when we went over more about alcoholism. Listen to a couple of them. Read that. Write down what happened before that slip. And a lot of people don't want to do the work, so they just stop calling me. It's very rare that I've had to let someone go. It's more often when I get fired. Just um, one quick thing. I, I, a woman left a message for me and she, to me, and she said, "No, I just want you to let you know that I, um, I'm got a problem myself. I had a slip last night. I just had a couple pieces before dinner, and uh, I just need to tell myself thank you very much." And I, and that was the message. And I called her back, and I said, "You know, you know what I heard?" And she's like, "Why?" I said, "Well, I heard, you know, hi, my name is so and so. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a gin and tonic girl." You know, but I had a slip. I had a couple beers after work, but since I didn't have my gin and tonic, I'm just considering it a slip. I'm back on track, and everything's okay. I mean, that sounds insane for an alcoholic to say that, but yet that's what we do when we say slip. You know, I had another girl call me and said she had a slip, and I said, well, what, what happened? And she goes, well, I had dessert at dinner last night at a restaurant. I said, okay, so your definition of a slip is you got the menu, you look at the menu, you made a decision about which dessert you have, you wanted, you waited until the waiter came over, you gave him your order, he went away for however long it was, he came back, he gave you the dessert, you had a fork, and you ate the entire dessert, and that you consider a slip. And she just started laughing. She's like, yeah, I guess that's not a slip. I'm like, no, that's succumbing to the desire again. And the only thing that's going to get between us and succumbing to the desire again is working the steps and getting a relationship with a higher power. And until you want that more than you want to succumb, you're going to keep going back into that vicious cycle of the, of the doctor's opinion. And I hope that helps, Sharon. Thank you, Sharon. Anyone else this morning questions related to Bill's story, program of recovery? 
Yes, good morning. This is Liz L. from California. I didn't catch your name, please. Liz L. from California. Liz L., and I heard someone else on the line. ZC from New York. ZC. Okay, Liz, then ZC. Thank you both. Thank you, and good morning, Kim. And um, I have a question for you. You talked about the step 10 and about using that for dating, and I'm in other programs. And I, in OA, I'm new here for about six weeks, and um, I realize I'm having a hard time looking for a sponsor um, because I'm in so much fear and so much mistrust, and I don't know if it's shame. I'm not sure what's going on. Um, I know the steps would help me. I'm doing okay but having a hard time. Um, Can you tell me what I could do to help me break through this wall of fear or whatever it is that's preventing me because I'm going this person's not right this person's not right and I know it's it's me and if there's some way I can use a 10 step or something else that I can get through this wall thanks okay just to clarify Liz you want to know how to break through the fear of asking someone to sponsor you is that correct um no I've done asking I've asked a lot of people. I've started with people, but they're not right. They're not available. The one person um, didn't feel comfortable working with me because I believe it. Sometimes I'm not finding, somehow I'm not finding the right, you know, it's like I've asked people on Vision for You, but then it just hasn't gotten calls or, or something. So there's something that's blocking this way for me, or I'm blocking are, energetically. I don't know. And are you accident? I'm abstinent for the bulimic, yes, yeah, six weeks. Um, okay. And, um, and my foods, uh, I'm doing okay. I'm not sure because I don't have a sponsor to see how I'm doing on that, but I'm doing okay in terms of the bulimic episode. Okay. Okay, well, just, just you know, I, I'm really aligned with the big book. If you are just getting the food down, you can't, in my, according to the book and according to my opinion, you can't do a step 10. Your step 10 okay. is only done after steps 1 through 9. Um, I'll just tell you my experience when I came into a, a phone meeting like this was I called around and there weren't there wasn't anyone available. And um, just to step back a minute, that that saying in program, if find someone who has what you want and ask him or her how he or she is achieving it, I think is BS. Um, because I'll tell you what I, that meant to me as a newcomer. I want to find the skinny girl with the cute boyfriend. That's what I wanted. I had no idea what I wanted. I think it's very um, mean to tell a newcomer to figure out, you know, what they want. Um, what, so I'm going to tell you, what you want is you want someone who's had a spiritual experience to identify themselves as recovered and have been through the book. That's all you want. Whether or not they're bulimic, whether or not they're your, this, you know, your age group had the same number of kids, same face is irrelevant. What you want is someone who is recovered, someone who's had a spiritual experience. When I came into um, a phone meeting similar to this, I could not find a sponsor either. It was just overwhelming. I mean, unfortunately, our fellowship is not healthy enough to have enough sponsors available for the amazing demand that comes into most of these meetings. But I knew I couldn't wait. And the way that this big book is set up, it's set up so that somebody can walk through the steps themselves. It's set up under the idea in 1939, they would mail this book to someone in Kentucky and Oregon and Texas, and they were eventually, you know, by the second edition, mailing them out to Somalia and to Brazil and to Sweden, and there was no one available to them. 
What I did have because of modern technology was I had these meetings. I had a group of recovered people that were explaining the text. Now, I was lucky. I was on disability. I had broken my ankle. I was bed down for 11 weeks. I had the ability to sit home and listen to meeting after meeting. What I did was I would listen to the meeting and I would listen to the first two or three shares and I would fast forward to the next paragraph because I knew I was in a race against time. I didn't have time to listen. And I know with our meeting, we get through two or three paragraphs a day. I didn't have time to do that. So I did accelerate it that way. And I called three recovered people a day, maybe four, maybe five, depending on who I can get in touch with. And I didn't say, hi, how are you? Um, my name is Kim, and what part of the country are you from? What I did was I said, I am in the doctor's opinion, and I was told for 17 years I have a threefold illness. It's talking about a twofold illness. Can you explain this to me? I would be in there is a solution, and I would say, I don't understand the difference between a moderate eater, a hard eater, and a true compulsive overeater. Can you explain this to me? So I utilized the group of recovered people to work through the steps. When I got to step four, there was a woman in my area who was recovered who could not sponsor me, and I said, listen, I need to do a fourth step. Can I make an appointment with you in two weeks on the phone because I'm bedbound? Can I make an appointment with you to do my fifth step? Because I knew from listening to the stuff that my four steps were a bunch of crap that I did college dissertations for, and I needed to give myself a time frame to finish it so I wouldn't complicate it. And in two weeks, I did my four step. We did five, six, and seven and all in one day. I made my list. By that time, even though I didn't have a sponsor, I had recovered people I felt comfortable with, and I would call them up and say, okay, I'm at my step nine. Here is the step four process. Okay, how, what's this amendment going to look like? Can you help me figure out what I need to do, and can I call you back when it's done? And then I moved into 10, 11, and 12. Now, I did have a sponsor who was not big book oriented, and she's still my sponsor today, but she's encouraged me, if this is my path, that I need to pursue that. And she's never gotten in my way or judged me or whatever. She's been supportive of me, and I value her support. But I recognize that my answer was in the big book, and I needed to pursue that. So hopefully if you start out that way, it will develop into a sponsor relationship, but you don't have time to wait for that right person. If you are a compulsive overeater, you do not have time to wait for that perfect person. And I hope that helps, Liz. Thank you, Liz, for the question. Now we'll go to ZC. Thank you. Good morning. Oh, thank you, Kim, for the great um, teaching today. Um, I miss you, ZC. <laughs> what? I said I miss you. I haven't talked to you in a couple weeks. I will talk. Okay, <laughs> so I have, I have weddings. Um, I, I'm wondering if you have a sponsor that is... Um, recovered, had gone through the steps, you know, and it says she's living in 10, 11, and 12, and then there is some pickup things not on her binge food. So how do we handle that? Um, once again, you have to get quiet with God and ask and find out what, it, what that means, what the circumstances are. There's a difference between abstinence and a food plan. I mean, abstinence are, is, to me is black and white. These are the food behaviors and the food um, substances that create the phenomenon of craving. The um, food plan is those limits and boundaries around the foods that you do eat. If someone participated in a food behavior or in a food that creates a phenomenon of craving, they're not abstinent. If the food plan was not followed and maybe there's something that they're 
needing to work on and consult a, um, a, you know, a, a um, nutritionist or a doctor because maybe that food plan is not working for them anymore. Maybe their hours have changed and they're finding that they're hungrier at different times. Or, you know, um, a lot of the girls I work with, uh, you know, are pregnant and breastfeeding and we're having to change their food plan according to what the body needs and what their child needs according to whether they're pregnant or breastfeeding. Um, so you need to work on that and identify with that and really lean into God and encourage them to lean into God. Because ultimately, you can't, ultimately you're, you're powerless, you say. You're powerless over the disease as much as they're powerless over the disease. So you just got to lean into God to hopefully encourage them to lean into God and find out what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks, Kim. Thanks, CC. Anyone else this morning? Hi, this is Frances. Frances, go ahead. Yeah, I just had a question about um, this part of the book I was working, reading with my sponsor, and we kind of didn't know exactly what he meant when it says, out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn its flight like a boomerang and all that cut me to ribbons. What, What does he mean by forge the weapon? Is it just alcoholism? Is it alcoholism combined with his speculations? I just didn't quite understand that, and I, it's a question I have. Thank you so much, Francis. I, lo- I love that line. I absolutely love that line. Alloy is combination, so the combination of drink and speculation. So the combination of drinking and business, he got a charge out of it. It heightened his excitement. It heightened his enjoyment out of things. But it began to forge the weapon because eventually the um, alcohol was becoming more and more important in his life. It was becoming the main focus, and eventually it took him down. So what once became an enjoyable way to, um, you know, ha- you know, money, fame, prestige, all that stuff was all mixed in with the alcohol, but eventually the alcohol overtook it and became this weapon that he could not have anything in life. Everything in life was decimated. He couldn't make a living. He couldn't make any money. He was living with his in-laws because he couldn't afford his own house. His wife was ready to divorce him. It annihilated him. So what at the beginning became the elixir to make him feel comfortable, I think of it as, you know, a lot of, I think of women too, we're, we're caregivers, so, you know, how do we, uh, um, you know, connect with people? It's like, oh, you know, Kim's lasagna, we can't wait to have Kim's lasagna, and we bring that in, and it, it helps us feel like a part of the community and an enjoyment, but eventually the lasagna is the only thing that matters, and suddenly we're avoiding those people, and they don't want us around anymore, and now it's that lasagna has become our destruction because we're not even participating in life anymore. Does that kind of make it clearer? Yes, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Francis. Anyone else before we wrap up this morning's presentation? Hi, it's Rifki from Vienna speaking. Rifki, your turn. Thank you very much for leading the meeting, and thank you, Kim, for giving us such clarity. I have a very uh, short question. Is it possible to get your phone number? Oh, sure. Um, I live on the East Coast, so that's Eastern Standard Time, and my number is 856. One second. Three. Eight five. Eight five six. Three one three. 
1887. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Kim, for your very beautiful and thorough explanation of Bill's story this morning. You've a lot of people opportunities for identification and a greater, deeper understanding of Bill's story, and we thank you very much for your service. And I'm going to close this morning's meeting the way we always close our meetings on A Vision for You, and that is with the reading from page 164 of A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.